0: On today's show is sergio altamara and he's into self-storage sometimes we talk about other asset classes i love self-storage and mobile home parks and of course multifamily the three most recession resistant investment classes out there and so sergio is a, is a great guy he's a member in go abundance i'm a member of that mastermind as well so we get to hang out uh, every once in a while and have him on a show here to kind of get to know more about the asset class that he is and how he got started uh, with that. Some of the lessons he learned along the way, he didn't always invest in self-storage, he actually invested in other real estate, got his butt kicked a little bit. We talked about that. And also how to balance life and how to surround yourself with people who are going to support you. That's all in today's episode. Before we get there, I want to uh, shout out Abdullah on Amazon, left us a book review uh, for the yellow book. And he says, this is one of the best books I've read on real estate investment. I'd like to thank the author for saying such a detailed step-by-step roadmap blueprint, which gives me the confidence to get started. It's much appreciated. So thank you for that. The yellow book is on Amazon. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate. Check it out if you haven't already. And if you have read it, just uh, leave it a review. We'd love to shout you out on the show as well. Uh, Success highlight is Sean Shirk, And he's a regular podcast listener. He's read the yellow book and he used that as inspiration to purchase his first deal. It was a fourplex in East Hartford, Connecticut, valued at $220,000. And he bought it with FHA financing and he's living in one of the units. House hacking. I love that. Now, if you've done a deal and you're listening to this right now, we'd love to hear from you. So tag us on social media at The Michael Blanc or email us at support at themichaelblanc.com. And we'd love to shout you out on the show as well. We're all about helping people do their first deal and becoming financially free. Now, with that, let's bring in our co-host today, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? Hey, Michael. What's going on? There's a lot of bad stuff in the news about things going on and the stock market going up, stock market going down, interest rates going up. Interest, uh, you know, we don't know, but there are people who have made investments over the last two years, and you know, some of them are in trouble. They're facing capital calls, maybe in a syndication, or maybe they're 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 facing some kind of loss. And it can be stressful uh, when you're in tough times like this and you're going through an unfavorable economic event like we have over the last two years. And you know, it can really affect you, it impacts you. And so I think the main thing that's important is that you remain calm and not only for your own benefit but also to make better decisions, such as if there's opportunity coming in 2024, how can you make decisions from a more calm perspective, a more objective perspective? Now, I know you've been through some stuff. Maybe you can talk about what have you done when things are a little out of control in your life? How are you able to calm yourself down?
1: Well, there's really one thing that you guys, anyone can control and that's your mind, right? So there could be the same event happening to everybody and some people are going to get in there and be able to solve the problems and live to see another day and then other people could crumble, right? And so the biggest difference is your mindset. And right now is, that is just an extraordinarily difficult time in general for anyone that owns existing real estate deals, especially with floating rate debt. You've got values that dropped off. You've got a lot of things that you have to challenge and overcome. And so there's a lot of mindset practices that that I've had to put into place. You guys have heard all, all the things in the, in the routines and in general, some of the things that I've found to really focus on have to do with my physical state and that's helped improve my mental state quite a bit. And so one major thing that I know Michael is actually completely not against, but he's like you're you're crazy for doing that is I've been jumping in my pool every day that's 51 degrees. And there's a lot there's a, a big study on cold water immersion that that can actually help Release dopamine in the brain, and I've found that to be completely true. And I I did it this morning. I've been doing it every day for the last actually the last couple of months, and I've seen major major health benefits I never knew existed, and it's helped keep my mind focused more than more than anything. I've also quit alcohol, so I stopped drinking for a while, and that's helped me really get into a really a great place in my headspace. Adding even like further things that, that maybe people look, look and laugh at, like grounding and red light therapy and things like that. But the combination of everything that I've added has made it impossible for me to feel down for too long. Mm-hmm. And that's just a hack that I've figured out in this time when everything seems to be so difficult on the outside, let's control what you can control, which is your mind and then show up and, and go to war. Yeah, I
0: love that, that you've done that. And everybody's got to kind of figure out what to do, but everyone needs to figure that out, right? Because you're going to have ch- challenges and it's going to mess with you and your ability to, well, function as a human and to, to have joy. You know, my, my problem, Garrett, is that I enjoy hot water too much. I, I, I'm i surrounded by cold plungers, like yourself. <laughs> you're not the only one I know. And I, you know, and so just not not there yet. But if the thing that's worked for me, especially when I was going through my, my first major stress in my life was basically total financial loss through in, in the restaurant's, and I think my faith has really been kind of that that cornerstone for me. And it allows me, it has allowed me through the grace of God to basically be at relative peace regardless of what's going on outside. So before I had the unbelievable talent of worrying, I'm a very analytical guy. So my brain would create programs with 5 million possible scenarios, all of which could lead to another 20 million scenarios of all the bad things that could happen. I was really good at, good at that. Of course, it doesn't result in a lot of sleep. And very tense, and so really through you know through meditation and, and prayer and, and silence and actually experiencing God, that to me has been foundational. So when things are, are you know going bad, that's kind of where I go to. Having said that, physical activity is a contributing factor, and you know in the olden days when things were stressful, I would simply work harder and skip any kind of workout, and I no longer do that. And for the same reason, you probably jump in your you know fifty-one degree pool is physical activity is one of those practices that really contributes to your overall well-being. So, yeah. So here's the thing, you know, you're always going through something in life. And what can you do to remain calm, a relative calm, so that you can make better decisions? You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, in 2024, we're going to be faced with investment decisions, for example, right? Or ma- major life decisions. Well, if you're freaked out how can you make good decisions, right? If you're if you're afraid because you had made an investment, for example, a syndication it went bad, and now your conclusion is, oh, all real estate bad. Never do that again, that's the wrong conclusion because you're kind of freaked out. So what can you do to become more calm so you can make better investment decisions? And so we talk about that a little bit with Sergio here as well. We talk about some of the failures that he learned from and what to do about it and how to, how to move forward. So let's get into right into the conversation here with Sergio Altamare. Sergio, welcome to the show today.
2: Thanks, brother. How are you guys?
0: Yeah, it's great to see you, man. You have a a really sizable business and equity firm. You've really gotten into self-storage. And I'd I'd like to just get you a little bit of a story story of how you got into that, because you probably weren't uh, born into self-storage. Love to get more of your background.
2: I've got a unique background in the sense, and I'm sure like you guys kind of have reinvented myself a number of times over my career. I started... Working for the Federal Reserve when I was 18 years old, ended up in IT, ran the gamut in in technology jobs, everything from tech support, information security, project management, enterprise architecture, you name it. And I had a a long career at the Fed, uh, 17 years working for the Federal Reserve Bank of Philly, 22 years working for the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, which is our, our national IT group. And along the way, I met my now wife in, in 2012, and we started investing in real estate. It started with a triplex. My wife was, she's a transplant from Los Angeles. She moved to Philadelphia on an opera contract, if you can believe that. She was a musician. And her parents' father was a, uh, an attorney. Mom had a, a Montessori school back in, in Glendale. And they taught her that you need to invest your income to kind of reduce your tax burden. So we were we were just dating at the time and I had a false start in real estate myself where I bought a duplex, I was going to house hack back in 2004. I learned my first lesson in real estate and not buying a property that wasn't zoned properly. So that was a good, hard lesson in how to do things properly. and so we, it started with a single triplex. Corinne was going to live in one unit, right out the other units. I've always been pretty handy. So we started renovating the unit that she was going to live in. She moved in with me at the time her lease had expired where she was renting. Fast forward to following year, we were like, man, we like this real estate thing. Uh, with my tech background, I was implementing all the property management software. And we started building and scaling from there. It wasn't long after we bought our second building, first one together, where we had friends and family, like really you know, inquiring on what are you guys doing and you know, starting to say, hey, how do I get into this? So we started to uh, build a portfolio. We started syndicating real estate deals back then. No idea what we were doing at the time. I mean, pretty good bookworm. I'm, I'm very good at learning, if anything. My father in law introduced me to the concept of, of syndication started picking up the books. Uh, bigger Pockets was was huge for me at that time. Brian Burke, picking guys' ears like that. And we started building and scaling that all while we had our day jobs. My wife was also an IT project manager. She had her night job or day job at the Fed and was doing the music thing. And then um, growing from there, fast forward to 2016, Corinne quit the day job 2017. I quit. My daughter was born in early 17. And as you guys know, with kids, that's a whole, you can work two jobs. man. But once you introduce kids into the mix, man, it's really, really tough. So so we had the day job, the night job, and then my daughter was coming around, man, and it was just not possible to do all the things. So, So I had to make a choice was I going to do the career thing keep that going I had incidentally become an officer at that time so I had the biggest promotion of my career but at that time I I did I mean like every entrepreneur right we were we were solo we did we wore all the hats I did all the underwriting so when we were looking to continue to grow and scale at that time it was small multifamily you know scattered site stuff we were looking to get into garden apartments I was doing all the underwriting. So 2017, 2018, I couldn't make anything pencil, right? In hindsight, I was using the most strict, you know, investment criteria that you could get there. I mean, things have kind of gone way beyond, you know, what I was doing. So being that I had worked for the Fed for so long, I I knew market cycles, I knew. You know, the economy is cyclical. So I, I, I knew that there was a correction, if not market downturn, recession. I, I really felt that one was coming on just how aggressive the, the capital was flowing into uh, multifamily. So I said, what other asset classes might we look at? Landed on self storage. Self storage uh, was by far the best performing real estate asset class coming out of the Great Recession or through the Great Recession. So started pouring into that, learning about it. And, um, you know, we decided we were going to make a pivot. We brought that to our investors and we said, you know, this is the direction we want to go in. Fortunately, at that time, most of our investors knew us very well, knew our investment philosophy. We had a very compelling argument for doing it. Everything that we bought had a lot of equity that was built in for, from our management and yeah, and so we took down the properties one at a time. We, we sold them off. We recapitalized our investors and then we pivoted into self storage. Initially, we maintained the property management company and, and some assets, mostly our personal stuff. But since over the last couple of years, we've sold all of our multifamily assets, sold the property management company, and now are 100% in, in self storage. We've got 14 assets, $50 million in plus and scaling that now. What did you like about or what do you like about self-storage? So a lot of it came down to where I thought the, the opportunities were and and what the levers are in terms of driving value in self-storage, right? Self-storage is, first and foremost, is very process and, and data-driven. The data in self-storage is is much clearer than it is in other asset classes. For example, you could have two 100 unit apartment buildings side by side, but there's different amenities here. There's you know, different fixtures here. In self-storage, a 10 by 10 self-storage unit looks exactly the same in Atlanta, Georgia, Los Angeles, California, or anywhere in between. The only thing that is different are the rates, the operating strategy, the ability to market and, and really that and and the ability to scale the back end the operating efficiencies is is pretty unparalleled. So to sum it up, what I love about storage is that number one, it's real estate, right? You got ground, you've got improvements. Number two, that it is an it is a business uh, with dynamic pricing, meaning, you know, we change prices on our inventory twice a week. You know, prices go Down on Mondays, they go up on Thursdays, right? The plan for that market or the cycle of the consumer. And, you know, the technology and data behind it allow for incredible efficiencies. Our our expense ratios are, you know, 35%.
0: So one of the things that we like about apartments is that we can hire a professional property management company. And is that similar in in self-storage or is is it something that you're going to have to
2: self-manage? Yeah. yeah, so we started self-managing. Uh, literally, my wife and I we bought an RV and lived part-time at our first storage site you to, to learn the business. <laughs> right? So it's it's very unconventional. So and then we managed ourselves in terms of hiring the staff. Now, one of the other efficiency areas is that you don't need a full-time person at each site. So, when we when we initially grew the portfolio, it was five assets in Pennsylvania in close proximity. We had one at its peak, you know, one and a half managers that were able to provide the day-to-day management, site cleanouts, move ins, move outs, but by and large, it's an online business. So you can rent a unit online. The third party managers, they are out there. There are probably, with, with the exception of the REITs, all of the REITs do third-party management. But the REITs, you have to have a certain size facility, right? It's not like like residential where it's 10% of management costs. You've got to have them, they have a minimum of $2,500 a month. Garrett.
1: Yeah. So I was just going to ask you. So, what do you think, like in multifamily, it's easy, it's kind of easy to find deals or, or build relationships in general. Like there's a lot more transparency out there. When it comes to self storage, how do you guys find deals? Because I don't know if there's, maybe there is now, but like a platform where you can go on there and just look stuff up. Do you, I mean, are you doing this kind of off market? Did you have to bring a a program into play? What does that look like?
2: So we have an acquisitions team now that does this full time and it's not unlike multifamily. It's very relationship driven, right? You got to have relationships with brokers sellers and markets and owners. What's unique about self-storage is it is a very collaborative and community-oriented industry. right? You go to a self-storage conference, it seems like everybody knows each other. It's super friendly. I don't know anything about gas stations, but you know how you have a gas station right across the street from the other gas station and it's almost like they work together. Self-storage is very much like that. There are a lot of mom-and-pop operators. 70% of storage facilities are still owned by mom-and-pop operators with the rest owning being owned by the REITs. But it is very much relationship-driven. We do have off-market campaigns. And as you... I mean, like you guys know, once once you have a presence in the industry, the phone calls start to come in. Hey, I've got this deal. It's a little bit too big for... You know, my ability to take down. Are you interested? So, And the ability to transact. The national brokers in self-storage, there's only a handful that do the majority of national volume. So we're in good graces there. We don't do the volume of, say, extra space in a lot of those guys, but there's pretty good deal origination, deal sourcing. And then our guys... They have a little bit about their own secrets, saw some of the benchmarks and some of the, the data that they use to identify markets and opportunities and things like that.
0: What's your outlook for for you, for your business and self-storage for next year, 2024?
2: So we kind of mirror in some regards, we're kind of like distant cousins of the residential market and, and multifamily. We love markets where there are, say, 30 40% plus renters So we love markets like that. We are very much connected to residential and people buying and selling homes. So 2023 was was certainly more muted than most other years in in the sense that residential, there wasn't a whole lot of people moving. We do feel that it's going to pick up in 2024. We're starting to see some, some hints that rates are starting to normalize, come down, we still have a very positive outlook. It's utilization of self-storage is growing year over year so back at you know eight, 10 years ago, utilization was nine percent of households. It's at 11 percent. so utilization continues to increase with utilization increase, the cost of housing going up self-storage is is very promising. We did have a post-COvid you know outsized growth year 2021 was a banner year for self storage. 2023 we saw rates the 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 pace of rate increases to come back towards normal levels but still you know still positive still trending all in the right direction. So we're pretty excited about 24.
0: So you may already know this but financial freedom is my obsession i spent years testing out different ventures in my pursuit of financial freedom i've done day trading owned restaurants flipped houses done software but eventually i discovered multifamily real estate syndication and it's really the only proven way to become financial free with real estate after doing my first syndication deal in 2011 i was hooked i started buying bigger and bigger apartment complexes raising more money we now own over 350 million dollars in assets and I want to help you do the same. We teach people from all walks of life how to achieve financial freedom with multifamily real estates. And our students have acquired over $1.5 billion in apartment assets so far. Complete beginners have done their first deal and quit their job, typically within 12 months of working with us, some as early as six months. We've helped experienced indicators. Who have done a few deals, scale their portfolio to 1,000 units or $10 million raised while working less. Now, if you're looking to do your first indication deal or you've already done a few and you're looking to scale, but maybe you're struggling to get to the next level, let's talk. Go to the MichaelBlunk.com forward slash call. And book a free strategy session with one of our advisors. So what we're going to do in that call is we're going to talk about your goals, where you are now, and put together a custom plan to help you get to that next level, whether it's your first deal or a thousand units. And here's the thing: if we decide to work together, then great. Otherwise you're going to gain an incredible clarity from talking to one of our advisors during that call. Either way, you win, and there's no obligation. So go ahead and book that call right now. Go to themichaelblank.com and book that free strategy. session. Because here's the thing, I really want to imagine how your life will change when you achieve that next level of where you want to be. It's financial freedom, quitting your job for the first time. Or building generational wealth with you know a thousand units or ten million dollars raised, whatever that is in the realm of real estate and apartment buildings, we want to help you get there. We can help you make that reality for you and your family. So go ahead and book that call, forward slash call. Talk to you soon. What's your challenge in right now in, in the in the business? Or is everything pretty stable as it always was? Or like what's your you know, one or two biggest challenges?
2: the challenge from a storage from a customer perspective is that there wasn't a whole lot of people moving around so so vacancies from a unit square foot occupancy perspective vacancy has ticked up a little bit our portfolio most of our stabilized assets where there's no uh, expansions or everything they're still 90 92% so they're 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 mostly full we have seen a downtick in occupancy 85% over the last few months. But the biggest challenge that we're finding is in financing. We've got deal flow. We've got a lot of deals in the pipeline, construction loans, acquisition loans, lending is is the capital there is pretty, pretty tight. However, on the equity side, we've got there's a lot of new money, new equity, private equity, institutional capital, family office capital moving to self-storage. So we've got a great amount of interest in our platform uh, in, in retail and institutional family office dollars. It's the cost of capital on the debt side and you know loan proceeds that are kind of changing the the underwriting a little bit.
1: So we saw you know similar changes. In our in our industry when everything happened essentially right like our leverage dropped interest rates way up curious what is like a typical capital stack look like right now for you guys
2: so we're at 60 65 mostly 65 percent leverage and the rest is all coming in as as common equity so we're doing 90 10 splits with our our institutional partners even in m- many cases on the retail side so, We have not needed to do a lot of the pref equity. Our our company personally, we we don't have any, haven't run into any debt risk. I've always been a big proponent of only utilizing, you know, adjustable rates and, and interest only periods where the business plan requires it, not as a normal thing. So so we've got fixed low threes, pretty much nothing matures for the next two years. On the construction side, that's that's where we are, you know, looking more non-recourse, still looking at, you know, those are those are still low double digits, high points, you know, that type of thing. On the on the equity side, we're we're still getting the right amount of investor interest. As you know, I mean, investor capital is is you know kind of a little uneasy, but it's kind of loosening up a little bit.
1: Do you run into like seller financing and all, or is it not really
2: a thing? And that we do for, for the product class that we're after, that is not as common, right? So, typically, if we're and, and when we first started, we were, you know, we were buying, I would say, what we could afford, not what the target asset was, right? And that goes back to even our multifamily days. You get whatever capital you put together, your capital stack, and what you can buy for that is kind of what you target. Now, we're targeting class if it's a value add. Class B, C, where we can increase it to class, you know, B, A. If it's ground up development, it's it's going to be class A. So we've got, I think, one property in our entire portfolio, which is a warehouse adaptive reuse conversion. That where we've got a a really nice seller finance. But for the size of the properties we're after, you don't see that much. There are a lot of newer, you know, individual self storage investors that are buying, you know, fifteen thousand square feet or smaller facilities, those are typically going to be the small mom and pop operator that can offer that for the size of the product that we're after. It's not it's not really common.
0: What's a barrier for entry into self-storage? In other words, can someone easily build something new and, and kind of compete with you directly, or is that less of an issue?
2: Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing with When it comes to self-storage is in with the exception of major metros, the cost to build this even a ground up self-storage, you know, class A facility is, you know, 100, 125, maybe 150 dollars a square foot. The biggest barrier to entry is is going to be zoning entitlements, zoning for self-storage is. It's one of the more stricter areas, just because from a municipality standpoint, it doesn't have a huge tax benefit, right? We're not, empl- I mean, we're employing people during the construction side, but when you're talking about maybe one full-time person as being, passing that through a municipality is, is not as easy. Now, the flip side of that is we've been able to get properties approved to markets where the locals have said, Hey, there's entirely too much multifamily, right? Let's let's you know, people need place to store from a dollar perspective. Our projects, you know, 10-15 million dollars for a ground up development, three to five million will buy you a decent sized facility that can be third-party managed. The value add components that we're finding now that we're doing is mostly expansion-based. You're not finding a whole lot that says, hey, I can just go in and clean this place up and drive rents. Maybe in some of the smaller size products, some of the tertiary markets, you can do that. But for the criteria that we're buying in, you wouldn't be competing necessarily with us. You'd be competing with us and REITs because that's kind of our main competitor. That's the markets that we're going in, where there are REITs, because in some of the products that we're putting out there, the REITs are going to be the managers.
0: I don't know for, for you, but for me, I learn more, Sergio, when I have failures, like from challenges and setbacks and that kind of stuff, right? So it's not—it's interesting to have you talk about your biggest success because who cares, right? It's so boring, and you're bragging, right? Now, my question to you is like, what's been like what your you know top two whatever lessons from maybe some <laughs> of your biggest failures?
2: You're talking about self-storage or just anything,
0: it? man, anything.
2: Yeah. So you know, my philosophy—I've always been a a con, you know, conservative investor, and and you know some of my and to me, I don't look at anything as a failure as long as I learn from it, right? It's it's That's the funny. price of education, right? I always say you can pay to go to Harvard or you can, you know, learn on the street. The education is the same. You know, my experience with that first duplex where it wasn't zoned properly, um, that was more of a beating that I took and, and really being super frustrated with trying to go through the process of, of getting it right. It cost me a lot of money. The endless number of contractors where I tried to save a buck and end up costing me too because I had hired the wrong guy, fired a guy and, and you know make changes there. Nowadays, it's really in bad personnel decisions, maybe bad third-party partners that you bring in. But you know, you guys have a sizable platform yourself. I don't look at them as failures as much anymore. I mean, it costs money, sure. We were just on a call earlier today talking about potentially walking away from a deal where we have $50,000 hard. And, and in some cases, if you walk away at the right time, that's a win, right? So to me now is, is really just taking those super stressful opportunities and turning them into positives and and really understanding, you know, how to focus on being in, and being as resilient as possible. But I've, you know, over the years, bad deals, not selling at the right time, selling. I, I never believe in selling too late unless you actually lose money. And I haven't had that experience, but the day is long, man. And there are lessons every single day.
0: That's right. Now, you and I are, are members of Go GoBundance. It's kind of a mastermind for successful entrepreneurs. And one of the things I like about it is that it doesn't just focus on business or money. In fact, it focuses on all parts of your life, right? relationships, your health, your your contribution, that yeah. kind of stuff. And I'm curious, what do you get out of it? Like, why do why are you still part of that organization?
2: So for me, it's about, you know, surrounding myself with people that are operating at either just as high, if not higher levels. I prefer to be the low man in a room because that's, that's where growth happens. Being part of GoBundance, it's, it's a hugely accountable group, right? So not like you said, not just from a business perspective. I actually find that for me, and this is not sounding egotistical, I find making money to be easy. Right, being a leader and growing a company is very hard, and for me, the accountability and what I need to do to become a better leader, and and the amount of work that I've been putting into that over these last couple of years, you know, has has certainly helped my business, helped me personally, health-wise, you know, and being a good husband, a better father, so. I mean, we are who we surround ourselves with. So to be part of anybody that is going to drive you to be better is huge, man. And that's the abundance has been life-changing for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody knows, you know, the successful, uber successful executive, you know, but divorced twice, you know, the kids don't yeah. talk anymore. And man, I don't I don't want that. Like that's that's a price no. too high to pay. Now the question is over the years, how has your definition of success changed, perhaps, Sergio?
2: Yeah, I, my definition of success is, I, I will say it's constantly evolving, right? So so now as our business and our company is on the right growth trajectory, my focus is now is how do I create a company that is built with trust and inspiration to lead the people there? So that my purpose and impact can be realized in other ways. For example, like my wife and I are talking about what, what is our purpose? And money is, is a tool, but it's not a purpose in and of itself. So now it's philanthropic, right? Where, where do we have the ability to share what we've learned? Where do we have the ability to inspire more people to do well? I, I know that you're huge in that regard yourself. So for me, it's, it's really doubling down on that as a, as a father, you know, how can I be an even more intentional father? How do I make sure that I am there? Like, as soon as this call is over, as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to pick up my little girl and and we're going shopping for her Christmas pajama party tomorrow. And I can do that at 4pm in the afternoon. I'll I'm also up at 4 a.m., right? So I've structured my day, my life to where I am present, where I need to be. And and it's all about driving to purpose. I mean, our purpose with my wife is, is really about how do we give back? We're big believers in education and really going back into building an intentional, purposeful, driven life. And now we're about to build a uh, part of us buying this farm as part of that. We want to be more in living with nature, not on nature. And whether it's through my daughter's school, we want to build her next school, we want to build an educational program around farming and and people working with their hands. So it's an adventure, man. It really is. It's evolutionary, like I said.
0: I love it. I think intentional living is is really at the heart of yeah. living fulfilled life. So it's it's awesome that you're that you're doing that. Hey Sergio, it was really great to connect with you. How can people find out more about you?
2: Yeah. So I'm easy to find Sergio Altamare on, on LinkedIn. My email address is sergio at hfireholdings.com, or you can go to hfirecapital.com. I respond. I don't get barraged with many, many fan emails. So, so I respond to all the emails, anything I can do to help anybody. I'm always, always glad to do it.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show today, Sergio. Thanks, guys. One of the things that stuck with me was he made a comment it's so important to be surrounded by the right group of people. And and it's it's so true and I remember when I first started when I quit my job, I was not surrounded by any other entrepreneurs. Like everybody was obviously employed. And man, and when you, when you do something entrepreneurial and you're not surrounded by other entrepreneurs, people kind of look at you strange and they actually try to talk you out of it. Even to this day, my dad, right? He he goes, oh, Michael, sounds like a lot of risk. You know, I've been doing this for now for 20 years. Sounds very risky, Michael. (laughs) And I was like, so I can't go to my dad and some, you know, so old friends to get support. And you probably went through that as well. And it's sad, but it's, you just have to accept it. You just have to accept it and move on. It doesn't mean you should never talk to him again, but it does mean that you got to surround yourself with the right group of people that are going to, that are going to lift you up to wherever you're you're going. And you Jim Rohn said you could become the average of the five people that, that are you're around that you spend the most time with. So who are the five people you spend the most time with? And do you maybe need to make a a change?
1: So that really stuck with me. I think just one of my earlier memories is graduating from college and coming back to my parents' house to live for that And all I wanted to do was create my next business. And all I heard from them was that's so much risk. What are you, what are you trying to do? And I eventually mustered up enough money to, to go sleep on someone's couch, downtown Chicago for $200 a month. Cause I had to get, I just knew I had to get out of that environment. I'm like, I can't, can't have the noise hitting me this way and starting to erode my thoughts. I have to keep focused to the point where I was willing to go to like the, cliche area of, of going to sleep on a couch to make your dreams happen. Right? Like that, that really happened to me though. (laughs) And so I I think even like when I moved to Scottsdale, I had a group of friends from Chicago that, you know, I still, they're still around, but they were doing things that were more like fun things on the weekends. And it wasn't really, they weren't really entrepreneurs and any of that. I had to go out and actually pay to get local friends that were entrepreneurs through EO. And that was a game changer absolutely for me as well so yeah I, re- I really like what Sergio had to say about that I also like how he's taking a you know a, just a conservative approach to it he kind of eased into his business where he went in and tried a new asset class out started small and then is now scaling that which is similar to my story and your story and I think that that was that's really a, a good way to look at venturing into any asset class.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that some people suffer from shiny objectitis, you know, and there's so many different business opportunities. And the mistake I see most people make is they just jump from one to another. They never allow a chance to scale anyone. And I think the rule of thumb I heard from somebody, any kind of idea you have, you have to give it a five-year runway to get enough momentum and build enough expertise in that before you try to expand the business into something else. And so, you know, that's multifamily for, for us. And, you know we've gotten very deep expertise in that area and Sergio's gotten a lot through uh, self storage as well.
1: yeah I mean the, these different asset classes they they do have nuances so I think Sergio may, made it seem fairly simple as to what he was achieving but I, I think that's coming from a modest place because every it doesn't matter which industry you're in or which asset class jumping between them is not the easiest thing to do. there's people that have decades of experience that are, you're competing with in the space. And having that kind of experience behind you is, is, I mean, this really gives you an advantage. And so spending your time learning the nuances, getting, getting the ins and outs and making the mistakes, learning from mentors, all those things are going to help you be successful in whatever asset class you choose to pursue. And in this case for Sergio it was was just, this vehicle was the self-storage.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it is very simple. And we don't talk about a you know, risk adjusted return a lot. But right, you talked to asking about the capital stack and a 65% debt, you know, the rest equity, like there's no pref, there's no variable rate in there. Right. And it's been like that for decades. And, and one of the reasons is it's harder to get financing for mobile home parks and self storage. And so it's always been like that. And I think in our industry, it got pretty frothy there up, up into March of 2022, a lot of debt, a lot of money flowing into it. And if you look at the spectrum of risk adjuster return, it was probably in the most aggressive, the, probably the riskiest part of the of the cycle. But the thing is, it's been like that for years, like five years. It's been kind of like that, and then over the last two years, of course, it swung to the other side. Now, you know, people are buying stuff at, at extremely high interest rates, fixed loans, or if they are getting bridge debt, it's also fixed for a very long period of time. So the the risk has adjusted significantly, and so. Again, if you're listening to us right now and you're looking at the year coming up here in 2024, I think it's going to be a magical year if you're in the market to either invest or to get started in apartment buildings and just get educated about that right now because the deals are going to be happening quietly. You're not going to hear them on LoopNet or, or, or in the news. They're going to hap- happen in the off-market space between operators with lender workouts and things of that nature, pref equity maybe. So make sure that you're plugged in. If you're a passive investor, talk to an operator or we'd love to have a conversation with you with our, we're at Nighthawk Equity, nighthawkequity.com. Just go there and just schedule a call. And we'd love to talk with you so that when we do get an an incredible deal, you'll be the first to know about it as well. And if you're evaluating getting apartments, get your education now so you can start talking to brokers so that you can see these opportunities that are developing in the year as we're already seeing. So with that, catch you
1: guys next time. Thanks for listening take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading Michael's free ebook The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building head over to the michaelblock.com/ebook
2: to get the free training